0: Welcome back to the first episode of 2018 of the Straight A Nursing Podcast. I'm so glad that you're here. If this is your first time here, welcome. And if you are a returning listener, so glad to be talking with you today. My name is Nurse Mo, and today we are going to be talking about hemodynamic Medications. So, this podcast is essentially going to be most valuable to you when you are in your advanced med surge course and your critical care clinical rotations. So, if you're a brand new student, a lot of this might not make sense yet, but don't worry. Soon you will be speaking the same language, I promise. So in critical care, we use a handful of what we call vasopressors and inotropes to treat patients who are in shock. And the most common types of shock that I deal with in the medical ICU are septic shock and cardiogenic shock. So I'm going to share with you the medications that I come across in working with my physician team to treat those conditions. And I just want to pause for just a quick second. I received a comment on the website the other day from someone who was under the impression that when I say nurses do this and nurses do that, that I was stating that nurses are diagnosing, nurses are intubating, nurses are starting central lines. I don't mean You personally are doing that. So if I say your patient's going to be getting dopamine, I don't mean that you are going to prescribe it. I mean that you are going to advocate for it if it's appropriate, and you, plural, the whole team, are collectively going to be getting dopamine for your patient. The physician will prescribe it. You will administer and monitor it. When I say that your patient's going to get intubated or you're going to be intubating this patient who's breathing four times a minute and has a CO2 of 95, I don't mean you personally, the nurse. I mean, you as a team are going to be intubating this patient. So just a little aside there, if you had any confusion about What I am stating the nurse's role is, of course, I know that nurses don't diagnose. And of course, you know that unless you are a nurse practitioner, an advanced practice nurse, you're not going to be prescribing medications. So just take that in from the context with which I intend it. It's a whole team. You are going to advocate for things and you are going to perform the follow-up and the monitoring and the assessment and all of those things that come with taking care of patients. And then when we're talking about diagnosing, this was something in nursing school that really annoyed me, actually, because I know there's nursing diagnoses and there's medical diagnoses and then nursing diagnoses. We had to learn all of this stuff, but I felt like we had to kind of learn about the medical diagnoses as well. And not that we are actually defining what the patient's medical diagnosis is, that's not our job. But if you see that your patient comes in with a cough, with a fever, with muscle and joint pains, overall body aches, and it's January, it's really helpful for you to know that they likely have the flu because it's flu season and they've got some signs of flu so that you can immediately advocate for your patient and approach the medical team, approach the MD and say, hey, I'm seeing X, Y, and Z with patient Bob over in room six. It's possible he could have the flu. What do you think about getting a nasal swab on this guy and putting him in droplet isolation precautions until we figure this out? That's the extent to which I'm talking about. You need to know your medical diagnosis so that you can kind of anticipate where your patient's treatment plan is going so that you can be A, part of the medical team's decisions with what happens with this patient and not just reacting to orders. It's part of your role as an advocate to know as much about what could be happening to your patient and what is happening with your patient. I always say that nursing is seeing a problem and fixing it and and anticipating anticipating problems and trying to avoid them. So that's just how that plays in. I by no means suggest that you are making diagnoses and saying this patient has the flu, this patient has pneumonia, this patient has, you know, leukemia. You're not doing that, but you can kind of look at what's going on with your patient and have questions that you can then approach the medical team with And if you are a valued member of the team, if you work in that kind of great environment, then people will start to listen to your opinions and questions and things. And you can have these meaningful conversations with the medical team. So I just wanted to address that because there was somebody out there who who really felt that I was saying that nurses intubate patients or nurses diagnose. And I by no means mean to suggest that. That's obviously outside of the nurse's scope. And if you would like to learn more about what your scope is, I invite you to read the Nurse Practice Act for your state, which you can find online. Just type in to Google Nurse Practice Act and you'll get a lot of information. And you may have to do that for one of your courses in nursing school anyway. So there's that. I just wanted to clear that up. So let's say your patient is in shock. They are hemodynamically unstable they're going to be getting some pretty powerful medications. And it's your job as the nurse to know what these meds do, what you're going to expect them to do, and how you're going to administer them and what you're going to kind of watch for with these patients. So what do we mean by the statement hemodynamically unstable? So at the very... Most basic part of that concept is the fact that they don't have a good blood pressure. So you'll hear a lot of discussions in the ICU about the patient's blood pressure. Many of the patients in the ICU will be getting their blood pressure measured every 15 minutes. Anyone who is on a hemodynamic medication, such as the ones we're going to be talking about here, will definitely be getting their blood pressure measured at least every 15 minutes via blood pressure cuff. They could have an arterial line in place, and if they have an arterial line in place, then you're going to be measuring blood pressure in real time, which is the preferred way to do it. But you don't always have that. So at the very least, blood pressure is every 15 minutes with these drugs. So let's say your patient has a low blood pressure. And by low, we typically mean a mean arterial pressure or a MAP below 60. Typically, we try to keep MAP above 60 or above 65. There will be some cases where you will want to keep MAP higher, but we won't go into those Here, because the treatments are going to be the same, you're going to be giving these vasopressor, vasoconstricting medications. So the one that we use the most, it's the first one we go to, so I think it should be the first one we talk about, is norepinephrine, which also goes by the name levofed. You may hear it called in shorthand norepi, and you will often hear it just called Levo. So if you hear those two terms, norepi or levo, it's just shorthand because nurses are busy and we don't have time to say long words. Everything's got an acronym or a short name, something like that. So you're gonna have your patient who is on norepinephrine, also known as Levofed. So you want to know what is this medication going to be used for and what are we gonna watch for? So norepinephrine is an alpha agonist. So the alpha receptors means this medication is going to infect, infect, sorry, affect. It is flu season. Everybody's infected right now. Um, It's going to affect arteries, increase vascular tone, and cause blood pressure to go up. So if you remember from your physiology class that, the vasculature is like a garden hose, if you think about it. And when you constrict that garden hose by placing your thumb over part of the opening at the top, what happens to the flow of the water through that garden hose? It gets, sorry for the noise, it gets a lot stronger, right? It starts spurting out and that's how you clean the sidewalk or whatever. So think about that when your patient is on a vasoconstrictor. You're going to squeeze that down and basically cause the fluid that's in there to have more force as it moves through the body. It's going to increase blood pressure. So that's what your alpha 1s are going to do, your alpha receptor agonists like norepinephrine. So your body does have natural norepinephrine in it. And you're going to be adding this levofed, this norepinephrine to your patient who has a low blood pressure, but you believe has enough fluids on board. So you'll be talking in your advanced med surge class about different shock states. Is the bucket full or empty? Is the pump working or failing? Things like that. And I am going to do a whole episode on shock states. So don't worry so much about trying to identify what type of shock. Just know that if your patient has fluids, they're Fluid volume resuscitated is what we say, or uvolemic, they have enough fluid, they're not fluid depleted, then you're going to probably use epinephrine as one of your first drugs to increase blood pressure. Now, this changes by physician preference, hospital habits and policies, things like that, but don't be surprised if you see norepinephrine as the first line drug. In the old days, they used to call it levofed leave them dead because it was being given to patients who were fluid volume depleted and then they get this very powerful drug and it doesn't help that much and then all these awful things start happening happening to them because of it and patients were not having good outcomes but now that we're using levofed once the patient has enough fluid on board then outcomes have been improved the levofed doesn't have to stay on as long and you don't have a lot of the awful sequelae of that drug happening as much though. I have seen it a few times and we'll get into that in just a minute. So what is norepinephrine, also known as levofed, going to do for your patient? It's basically going to cause arterial and venous constriction. Okay, so vasoconstriction. This is going to cause your blood pressure to go up. Heart rate probably not affected too much. It might slow down just um, because the blood pressure is up. Maybe the heart rate had been elevated to try to compensate for a low blood pressure. Now that your blood pressure is up, the heart rate might start to come down a little bit. It doesn't affect cardiac output so much, but there could be a little bit of increased afterload because of that systemic vascular resistance, that's going to increase. the cardiac output could drop just a hair. So yes, so systemic vascular resistance, think about that tight, tiny garden hose. There's more resistance, right? So your SVR will be up and your peripheral vascular resistance will be up. So to give norepinephrine, you're going to start, we typically start it at two to five. It depends. Most of our uh, order sets read, start it at five. And then you will see pretty wide ranging dosing parameters. Like one pharmacy text I use says two to 10 micrograms per minute. Um, Another one says two to 15 micrograms per minute. I've seen two to 20. In my hospital, 30 is kind of the top range dose for LevaFed. So our dosing is kind of like 2 to 30. Though if your patient's on 30 Levo, they are sick. So you want to use the lowest dose LevaFed that you can, obviously. So how do you do that? You are going to be measuring your blood pressure Frequently, if you've got an arterial line, you're going to be measuring it in real time, and then you will titrate your infusion from there. And you may hear people calling it a drip. And so, if someone says, Is your patient on any drips? What they're asking is, Is your patient on anything that you're titrating for hemodynamics? or other things. Sometimes there'll be insulin drips that you're titrating for blood sugar, but typically drips, we're talking about stuff that you are continually changing, and that patient will be in intensive care because of the monitoring and interventions that have to be done so frequently. So you'll get your Levo Levo fed up. You will start it at the dose that your physician has prescribed or that your policy dictates. And then it'll say typically that you can increase it every five minutes to reach your MAP goal. Here's a little caveat to that. Once you've been a nurse for a while and you've titrated LevoFed, you've started a ton of LevoFed infusions. If you look at your patient and their blood pressure is 65 or 70, and their map is in the 40s, I encourage you to immediately notify the physician that you'd like to start the levafed at a higher dose so that Maybe you don't have time to start it at 2 and titrate every 10 minutes and then slowly, slowly, slowly watch your patient be hypoperfused for quite a while until you get it up to a therapeutic dose. So in those cases, you can tell the physician, can we start it at a little higher initially. And most of the time, I think they're going to say yes. So just make sure you get covered in your orders for that because it will be outside of your normal dosing parameters. But get the order if you have a good relationship. It won't be a problem. The physician will trust you on that one. So that's norepinephrine. Why Do you have to be so careful with this drug? So this drug is a very powerful vasoconstrictor and and pretty much all of these are, but what you really want to watch for is peripheral vasoconstriction. Sorry guys, I just, I thought I turned off my notifications and I apologize. You might hear a ding once in a while, peripheral vasoconstriction that is detrimental to blood flow at the fingers and the toes, you will see patients' fingers start to turn dusky. That would be first, you'd probably see delayed cap refill, okay? And then you'd start noticing cool extremities, cool fingers, cool hands, cool feet, cool toes, then a duskiness. Eventually, if the leva fed other, other vasopressors stay on for extended periods of time, and we're talking days and days and days, then these extremities will have no blood flow and they will die and they will turn black and fall off. I was trying to think of a gentler way to say that, but this does happen. So vasoconstrictors, very powerful medications. You don't want to take them lightly. Watch for things like, um, very, uh, cool, poor cap refill, things like that. We say that the patient is very clamped down because they're vasculature is clamped down. It's so tight because of those high-dose vasopressors. So that's another term that you might hear. So that is norepinephrine. And again, you're going to see different dosing parameters, 2 to 10, 2 to 15, 20, 30, whatever. The key with norepinephrine is that once you get to about 8 or 10 and you're still not really maintaining your goals, at that point, you might want to go to your physician colleagues and advocate for an additional vasopressor. And the one that we typically add next is called, easily enough, vasopressin. So vasopressin probably sounds kind of familiar to you already because it is basically the antidiuretic hormone. So this is going to be used to cause some smooth muscle constriction. Okay. It's going to have less constriction at the coronary and the renal beds, so the kidneys won't take such a hit from being on vasopressin as they will uh, if you were on Levo by itself at a high dose. And it can enhance platelet aggregation and septic shock. So we'll go into more about why that's Important in septic shock when we talk about sepsis. But if you're interested in sepsis, I think there are several resources on the website. If you do a little search in the search bar for sepsis, you will be greatly rewarded. So, vasopressin, when we add it, that is not typically titrated. The physician will write an order for dosing to be at 0.03 units per minute or 0.04 units per minute and it really is from my understanding physician preference there have been some studies done on which is more effective obviously you want to use the lowest dose you possibly can so don't be surprised if you see 0.03 sometimes and 0.04 sometimes vasopressin is going to increase your patient's blood pressure their mean arterial pressure of course it's going to increase systemic vascular resistance and increase urine output, hopefully. So that is a vasopressin. That is often the second one that we reach for where I work. And again, a lot of this is dependent upon physician preference. So if you have a different experience where you're doing your clinical rotations, that doesn't mean it's incorrect. It's just different. And Talk to your nurse, talk to your physician colleagues, and learn as much as you can about these drugs because they're really interesting. And if you are going to go into critical care, they are medications that you will be using a lot. So that is Levofed and Vasopressin. Let's go into one of the next ones that we'll add. And I haven't really noticed which one we typically add next, one versus the other. So let's just talk about epinephrine. So I'm sure you've heard of epinephrine before. It's another one of those things in your body, it's an endogenous catecholamine. This one's going to be a beta and alpha agonist. So we talked about the alpha agonists affecting the arteries, increasing vascular tone, increasing blood pressure. What about the betas? So this is going to have some heart stimulation. Your heart rate will go up with beta agonist drugs. It can increase contractility, But with that comes a price. It also increases the chance for arrhythmias. So when your patient is on any kind of beta agonist, watch for ectopy, PVCs, things like that. You hopefully won't see lethal rhythms with it. You might see runs of ETAC here and there, but hopefully nothing that is going to harm your patient if you get concerned again. Advocate for your patient, let the physician team know what's going on, and changes may need to be made. But let's say you're adding epinephrine, what are you going to be watching for? So this one is powerful. You will see almost an immediate reaction. It's typically never a first drug that you would reach for because it is so, so, so potent. It's going to increase the contractility with that. The oxygen demands of the heart are going to go up. So, Your patient's probably on oxygen already because they are so sick, but anticipate maybe having to increase the oxygen. Talk with your respiratory therapist and make sure they know that your patient is going on this drug so that they can also be aware and keep an eye on the patient's oxygen needs. Heart rate will increase with epinephrine. So if your patient's had low heart rate and that's part of their problem, then this can help. Mean arterial pressure is going to increase. Your cardiac output should increase. Again, systemic vascular resistance and peripheral vascular resistance will increase. Again, it will cause arrhythmias, not all the time, but sometimes keep a close eye. And the dosing for epinephrine is typically 1 to 4 micrograms per minute. Okay, when you think about how tiny a microgram is, it helps you understand how potent this medication is. So we've gone over norepinephrine, also known as levofed. We've talked about vasopressin and then just now epinephrine. Another one that you will reach for is neosinephrine, also called phenylephrine. So sometimes we'll just shorten this to neo because who has time to say neosinephrine all the time. This is another alpha agonist. It is powerful because it is so powerful. We don't often use it as a first line, but I have heard of some places doing that. So we're going to use neosinephrine when we don't want any beta stimulation. So if the heart rate's already high, Neosinephrine might be good because it typically should not increase the heart rate with it. So it will cause some vasoconstriction. There could be some bradycardia with it. So be very watchful for that. Your blood pressure is going to go up with neosinephrine, as are your systemic and peripheral vascular resistance. It will also increase afterload as well. It does cause some coronary vasoconstriction, so keep a close eye on the heart and what's going on there on your EKG. It's used a lot in neuro cases, which we won't go into greatly here, um, but there's a disruption of the alpha agonist system in neurogenic shock, so you'll sometimes see it used there. How you dose neosinephrine is you're going to see your order typically say... To start with a kind of a what we call a loading dose, 100 to 180 micrograms per minute is standardly typical. And then once you reach your goal, you're going to be at 40 to 60 micrograms per minute. That's the typical dosing parameters. Of course, your physician could prescribe something different, but just kind of so you know what the normals are. And you'll titrate this every... Depending on your policy and what your physician wants, every 15 minutes, maybe less if your patient's crashing and super sick. So that's neosynephrine, also known as phenylephrine, affectionately known as NEO. So let's talk a little bit about some dopamine and dobutamine. So these are two drugs that are really easy to mix up because their names are so Similar. So let's talk about dopamine first. It also goes by the name inotropin because of its inotropic effect. So that helps you kind of remember what it does. And if you remember, inotropes increase the pumping of the heart. They increase cardiac output. That's what we're trying to get up. Is cardiac output in a patient for whom you would be giving dopamine? So you're going to use dopamine. I'd say I don't use it a ton, but in some places you'll see it used a lot. It is again, another naturally occurring catecholamine in the body. It's the precursor to norepinephrine, if you are into that sort of thing. And there's some debate out there about different levels of dopamine and what they do in the body. So I don't know if that debate has been solved yet, but I will tell you what the standards are, and then you can explore that out there on your own as you see it used. So low dose dopamine, I used to see this a lot when I first started. I have not seen it in a long time, but it can be used low dose or so they say to increase cardiac output. Not cardiac output, scratch that, urine output. Low-dose dopamine is sometimes used to increase urine output. And that is because some believe that low-dose dopamine, one to three mics per kilogram per minute around there, is going to cause some renal and coronary vasodilation, so they will get more flow, and urine output will go up. There's this mid-dose dopamine range that is 3 to 10-ish mics per kilogram per minute, and that's going to give you your beta stimulation, and that will be your standard positive inotropic effect dopamine with the heart rate going up some and the blood pressure going up some. So that's your positive inotropic effect for dopamine is that mid-range. And then for those who subscribe to the varied dosing of dopamine theory, greater than 10 mics per kilogram per minute is alpha stimulation with very potent vasoconstriction. So if you see your dopamine-ordered differently than the three to ten standard mics per kilogram per minute I encourage you to talk to the team and make sure that everyone understands what the goal is for the dopamine if it's to get the blood pressure up and act on alpha then maybe you you know that greater than ten dose is the one that you need if you're just seeing, Uh, a low dose, make sure that the goal is to increase urine output. Um, And if you're seeing the different things out there, we don't really use dopamine that much. So I can't tell you from my experience what we're standardly dosing it at, but I'm curious if you are using it, let me know. Drop a line into the straight A nursing uh, contact form on the website and and let me know what you're seeing out there because this was kind of hotly debated for a while. And then the other one we talked about was dobutamine. So this is a beta agonist, okay? It is an inotropic medication. You might also see it by the name Dobutrex, but we just call it dobutamine or Dobute, because who has time to say dibutamine when you're in a hurry? So this is going to be used a lot for that inotropic effect when you don't want to vasoconstrict so much. It will reduce preload and reduce afterload. So you might see this used with a another catecholamine-type drug or another vasodilator-type drug. What you'll see it do for your patient is contractility and cardiac output will go up. Blood pressure will improve because cardiac output and contractility are increased. It will increase the oxygen demands on the heart, so please be aware of that. And there could be some heart rate increase with that you want to be really careful when you start dobutamine, watch that heart rate because some people are very sensitive. And if the heart rate jumps too much, please let your physician team know that the heart rate went up substantially. They may not want to keep using dobutamine for that reason. I like to start low and titrate very conservatively, staying in the room watching the heart rate, watching the patient the whole time. And then I don't leave the room until I get to my goal and what I feel is a safe place for the patient. So you're dosing for this. Typically is 2.5 to 20 mics per kilogram per minute. That is a huge range. So you're going to be starting at some policies say start. Ours typically will say start at five and go from there. I recently had a patient who was already kind of mildly tachycardic. So I actually started at the 2.5 and gave it a little bit before I felt safe to go up to the five. And that's fine. Just make sure that you write a little note and... um. So, that you're kind of explaining why you did it that way. As long as you've got patient safety in mind, then we're good. And she was on a uh, vasopressor at the same time. So, I never, it wasn't like she was crashing and I had to start it. She already had a good blood pressure, but we felt that dobutamine would be better for her because she needed more of an inotropic effect. So, I started low because she already had a good blood pressure. And then I kind of titrated the Levofed and the vasopressin down while I amped the dobutamine up. And let me just be clear, I didn't titrate the vasopressin. Vasopressin is on or off Typically, some places I have seen a titration order. So I didn't mean to say that I titrated the vasopressin down. I got the vasopressin off and titrated the levophed down. That's typically how you do that. So that is dobutamine, a beta agonist. And to review real quick, beta agonists are going to cause some heart stimulation. Heart rate will go up. Contractility will go up. Watch for arrhythmias. And then another one that I've seen a few times in medical intensive care, you'll probably see it a lot more if you work cardiac intensive care, is milrinone, also known as Primacor. So this is a phosphodiesterase inhibitor, and it will have some positive inotropic effects and vasodilation effects. So what do you think is going to happen to your patient? Patient's blood pressure, maybe when you first start the milrinone. The blood pressure could go down until the full effects on the contractility and the inotropic effects are in place. So, I had a patient who was in severe cardiogenic shock, heart failure. And I had never given milrinone before because I work medical ICU and patients like this typically go to cardiac ICU. So the cardiologist ordered milrinone and I had never given it before. So the very first thing that I did was look it up, learn as much about it as I could really fast. And then at that time, We had these older IV pumps, so you had to do all your math by hand. And so I think I did the math on this thing about five times. And because I was really nervous about giving it and I wanted to make sure that I did it right. And then I went to another nurse and said, Could you please do the math on this so that I can make sure I did it right? And she did the math on it and we got the med up. And I believe the way the physician had ordered it, it was a loading dose. Yes. So that's, I think that's pretty standard. So the loading dose is pretty good. It's a 10-minute infusion, typically, and it's about 50 mics per kilogram. Well, he was a really big guy, so this was a big dose. And his blood pressure was dropping, dropping, dropping. And I called the cardiologist to tell her about five minutes into the infusion what I was seeing. And she said, just keep doing it, finish the loading dose. So I finished the loading dose, and then we went to the maintenance dose and... Blood pressure wasn't as much of an issue then, but it was a little scary for me, especially giving a drug that I didn't understand. And I did not hesitate to call that cardiologist back and tell her what I was seeing with the patient. She wasn't too excited about getting another phone call for me, but that's not my problem. My problem is the patient making sure that I've done what I need to do to take good care of him. So again, Milrinone, also known as Primacor, has got some inotropic and vasodilation properties. That's what you're going to see happen in your patient. And we could go into the whole thing of how it works, but this is not a pharmacokinetics podcast, but it's very interesting. What you'll see is increased cardiac output and and decreased systemic vascular resistance. So again, that loading dose, typically 50 mics per kilogram over 10 minutes is what you might see ordered. And then the maintenance dose is around the range of 0.375 to 0.75 micrograms per kilogram per minute. So as you can see, the loading dose is quite substantially larger than the maintenance dose for Milrinone. So oftentimes you'll have patients that are on multiple pressors, and when we say patients on multiple pressors, it usually means that they are on levofed, vasopressin, neo, epinephrine, combination of those, maybe also with some dopamine or something mixed in there, dobutamine, But typically, it's the vasoconstrictors, and they'll be on several of those if they are really, 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 really sick. So you'll be very busy taking those constant blood pressures. If they're on that many pressers, advocate for an art line, please. You will better serve your patient by being able to watch their blood pressure in real time. And you will be constantly titrating those up and down and all around to try to get the best outcome For your patient. So, that is just a very quick introduction to some of the medications that you will be seeing in your advanced med surge clinical rotations and talking about in class. So, I hope that helped. I hope some of those sounded familiar, like maybe you've already seen them or heard the names at least a little bit and next week on the podcast, or not next week, but the next podcast, we're doing them every two weeks now, and then the blog post is the alternating week, I believe we will be talking to a friend of mine named Eve, who is so amazing, you guys. So if you are into Twitter, then I invite you to follow her Twitter. It is great. She is super smart, funny, And such an advocate for her patients that I am humbled by how strong her voice is in this regard. And it really has made me think about my advocacy and how I can continue to cultivate, I guess is the word, that side of my practice. As nurses, we are all advocates. And it's important to just keep that at very, very top of mind as you're taking care of your patients. So check her out on Twitter. If you have time, I know you're busy studying, but it's her Twitter handle is at brow of justice. And yes, that is brow, like eyebrows, brow of justice, and you will not be sorry. She teaches hemodynamics at her hospital. She's super smart, super engaging. And we will be talking with her on the next episode, provided I recorded it correctly and could figure out all my technical issues. And the topic we will be discussing is advocacy and how you can start being an advocate as a nursing student and cultivate that part of your practice as you continue on on your journey of being a nurse. So for a lot of you, this is the start of the semester. To that, I say hang in there. You're probably really busy right now. If you're finding yourself in a time crunch and you're not having time to... Give as much attention to your lecture notes as you would like. I invite you to visit the Straight A Nursing Student podcast, not podcast, sorry, Straight A Nursing Student website at www.straightanursingstudent.com and check out all of the notes and study guides that we offer there for nursing students. I believe if you go to the website, look for study guides. I think that's the term I can probably tell you really quick at the top. And yes, study guides. And you'll notice there's free study guides and there's premium study guides. So there's a ton of free study guides and stuff on my site. If you want to kick it up a notch, then check out the premium study guides. They're super cheap and they're amazing. So the premium study guides right now are all for medSearch 1. So if you are a beginning student and you listen to this podcast and none of it made sense, well, here's your payoff. You can go get premium study guides on topics relevant for medSearch 1 at the website. They're amazing. I know that I am supposed to say that, but it is true. And another note, if you haven't gotten your flu shot yet, you guys, please get it. The flu right now is horrible. Um, You'll probably notice once you get into the hospital that they're packed. It's busy. The ICUs are full and there's so many patients with the flu That are dying. So get your flu shot. You probably have to anyway to be in clinical, but just my little advocacy project right there for you. So that is what we have for today. Thank you so much for listening in and spending your valuable time with me today. And if you have any questions, ideas, concerns, please drop a note to the uh, Contact farm on the StraightANursingStudent dot com website, and I will either get back to you here on the podcast, or shoot you an email, or respond in some way. I will definitely do that. So, thanks, and everybody have a fantastic, fantastic day. This podcast is brought to you by StraightANursingStudent dot com. Copyright Mo Media.